My name's Tom. I'm one of the pastors here. I pastor alongside Wade uh, and am grateful to be doing that for, I think, over three months now. Um, so really happy about that. And I welcome you. Um, also, I know today is a big day, right? Um, there's some football thing going on. I think it starts at noon. Um, and I just have Genesis 37 to 50 to cover. It's... No, I'm not going to cover all of that. But I wanted you to know that I, want, I wanted you to know where my allegiance lies when it comes to the um, the two teams. One of them has numbers in it, and the other one's about is it a bird? I don't know. There's so I'll just show you where my allegiance lies. Yeah. Yeah. The best team, right? I was given that shirt, and I've been waiting so long to be able to, to, it was good, right? That was a good bit, right? Okay. So uh, so let's look at the life of Joseph for a few minutes together, huddle around. I, I really appreciate Sammy dismissing the kids and saying the gospel is going to be at their level. I'm like, I need the gospel at that level because I don't always get it. I need it as, as a child. We have to come to it that way. So would you pray with me, and then we'll delve into the text together. Lord Jesus, would you please um, come to us by your Spirit and your Word. We are your children, and we pray that you would show us yourself in ways that go beyond what we can even pray, that you would give us hope, Lord Jesus, in you. We ask it in your name. Amen. Great. So um, this is my last sermon in Jet. Not my last sermon. This is my last sermon out of Genesis, just a little mini-series that I'd been doing starting kind of when I, I, I think I started started uh, pastoring here. And so we're, we're finishing up looking at uh, the life of Joseph or a little bit of his life as a way to understand the gospel. So um, I did want to give a little bit of... What, so you only heard the end of the story, what was read this morning. So when you get the end of the story, what are all the things that happened up until then? Oh, I meant to tell you also that Genesis, by the way, if, if you are still there in your Bible reading programs for the new year, um, I, I think, Wendy, you're finished, right? With your, good. Genesis, and I, I didn't say this throughout this whole series. Um, you know that book, I think it's been out for a while, but it's Everything You Need to Know About Life You Learned in Kindergarten. Have you heard of that book? It's like Robert Fulgham. Okay, it's okay. Um, but... Everything you need to know about the gospel and most of what you need to know about the rest of scripture, all the, all the ways it moves and works together, it's, it's in Genesis. It's the kinder, it's the beginning. So all the characters that are uh, portrayed, the way God works, the way he loves, his grace, um, all the brokenness, all, all the pieces of the gospel are clearly laid out, um, in Genesis. So everything you need to know to read the rest of scripture, starts right here in Genesis. So I wanted to say that as the last sermon in Genesis, that Genesis really will help you understand the rest of Scripture. As you know the beginning, all the other pieces um, will make sense to you. So because the Bible is one story, it's not all these different authors that somehow you know came together in all these text-critical ways and put a bunch of stories so that we don't... It's all dis... No, it's one story about how the God of the universe loves his people and will do everything to have them 
writes a revelation where we know he gets his people. Everything works out. It's the whole story is one story. So as we look at Joseph's life today, we started last week looking at Abraham and Sarah as the beginning of God's covenant love to his people. He had shown his covenant with creation with Noah. But then Abraham and Sarah were, as I preached a few weeks ago, were really important because they had nothing to offer for God to make them the beginning of his people. They had nothing to offer and God doesn't need us to offer him anything. Uh, He is all that we need. And so Abraham and Sarah were barren. They were going to be blessed to bless the world. And they're barren. How can how can that happen? Well, they had Isaac. um, And then Isaac, he marries Rebecca. um, And there's a great story about that and how that all happens. And then if you recall, I'm giving a little bit of history here with the story. Um, So Isaac and Rebecca... This is all the genealogy, and it's super interesting. As I was rereading some of this this week, I was like, the Bible is fascinating. The stories are, we, maybe we've heard them too much, but um, they're riveting. They're, um, they're super fascinating. Anyway, so Isaac and Rebecca have the twins, Jacob and Esau. And who came first out of those twins? This is like Sunday school. It was Esau, right? And then Jacob steals the firstborn birthright and uh, his mother, who played favorites, she liked Jacob more. And so anyway, Jacob uh, gets the birthright. He steals it from Esau. Jacob is the one with the ladder who wrestles with God. He marries Rachel, right? But the thing is, he was tricked by Rachel's dad to marry the other daughter, Leah. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's better than Yellowstone. I mean, it is... Total drama, total crazy stuff happening. And so then Jacob and Rachel and Leah, they have lots of kids, lots of boys, but Rachel can't have that many. So she has, but she has, but Leah has a lot of kids, a lot of boys, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel eventually. Can anybody name all of those? It's okay. Um, and I'm not going to either, but they, they end up being the 12 tribes of Israel, those boys. But see, Jacob loved Rachel very much, and she could only have she had uh, uh, she had Joseph. That was her first boy that she had, and so of course, because the families in Scripture are a complete disaster, they're wrecks. Um, Jacob loved Rachel's boys more than he loved the other ones. They showed favor. So let me ask you that. Just just looking at the families in Genesis, why do we think when we show up at church that all the families in the church are going to be perfect and this picture perfect? Like, why do we think the church is going to be this perfect thing when these are God's people here in Genesis and they're all disasters? They're all showing. I mean, they're the worst parents ever. They show favorites. There's all kinds of terrible things going on in the family. And these are God's people. So when you walk into church, you should realize, hey, God's people, total wrecks. Apart from the work of God in our lives, we're hopeless. So if if the church ends up, sorry, I'm, I'm I'm preaching now. I mean, if the church hurts you in any way or you you find the church hurtful because of family things or there's relational issues, yeah, it's all in Scripture. All of that stuff is all in Scripture. And you're like, well, Jesus came. Yeah, he came and he's the only hope for any of this brokenness to find any good. He's the the only hope we have. 
But you have to expect it. Well, I, I thought working with Christians would be... No. Working with Christians sometimes can be the worst. Yes, there is hope. And God is at work. He's changing families. He's cha- I mean, he's, he's working in these Genesis crazy families with these parents who play favorites. And so those brothers, uh, Joseph is the favored one, right? Because Rachel, uh, Rachel had him, Jacob, loved, but Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And why was that? Well, we know by the end of the story that God used all of that evil for good. But Joseph also had a coat of many colors given to him by his showing favoritism father. Uh, no other sons got that coat. And, um, and, jo- and Joseph also had dreams that God gave him. And how would your sibling relationships work out if, uh, let's say, I was your brother and I came to you and I said, Hey, guess what? The Lord showed me in a dream that I'm going to be ruling over you and that you'll be bowing down to me. How, how would things go in your family if that was the case? Some of you, I mean, I, I know a little bit of, about some of you, and you have families like that, right? I mean, where things just, wow, things go crazy. My family, total crazy also. And here, the family of God. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. Eventually, you know, he's a dreamer. He eventually gets to Egypt, where he gets into the Pharaoh's house. And eventually, by the grace of God, he becomes second in charge in Egypt, only to the Pharaoh in Potiphar's house. And he does that by what? Interpreting dreams. Isn't that crazy? He had all these dreams about him being elevated over his brothers. And then that's what really elevates him in the Pharaoh's house in Egypt, where he becomes second in command over Egypt, which is a very strong and mighty nation. And then what happens is a famine takes over the entire world in this time in the ancient world. Famine across the entire world. And because of Joseph, who was ready for that famine among all the nations? Somebody tell me which nation, because of Joseph, was ready for the famine? Egypt, right. Egypt was ready for the famine. No other nations were ready for it. In fact, there were nations that went extinct during this time because the famines wiped them out. Not Egypt, because Joseph was there to tell them, you need to get ready for this famine. You don't see it coming, but it's coming. You need to be re-. And so the Pharaoh's like, hey, Joseph says we need to be ready, so we're going to be ready. So then what of the Israelites, the brothers... That crazy family that Joseph left behind and now he's second in charge in the nation that knows what's coming. What would you have done if you're like, I'm second in charge over the nation that I wasn't born in, that God put me here, second in charge underneath the Pharaoh. Everybody doesn't know the famine's coming. We do because of me. And now my brothers I see over here, they're probably going to go extinct because they're going to just starve to death. Yes. Vindication. Social justice. But that's not how God works out all the stuff that crazily goes on in the beginning of the Israelite people. So yeah, the famine is coming. The Israelites, the brothers are going to starve. What do they have to do? They have to go to Egypt to get help. And we get to the end of the story where all these crazy things happens. And Joseph realizes these are the brothers who are asking for help. 
They don't see him, though, because why would they? He's grown up. Now he's an Egyptian, probably had a funky haircut. Who knows? They did not recognize him at all, but he sees them. And he tests them. And he, by the end of the story, we see that he realizes that all the things that happened to him were for the glory of God, for the good, not evil. Because if you try to take all the crazy pieces of your life and figure out, okay, God, you're working this way, that way, there is no way that this story could end this way without God sovereignly working his plan in a way that makes no sense, that even involves suffering and pain and difficulty and hellish things. Joseph was imprisoned for like 13 years with no hope except God. So one of the takeaways from this crazy life of Joseph and his family and the Israelites and God is that no matter what you see going on in your life, God is at work. He is bringing about for the sake of his glory and your good, good things. So um, I hope that's enough background. There's so much more. But let's just talk about a few applications to, to this. I mean, I just gave one. Actually, I've given two. The church and all the, the things that go on in church, we should know from Genesis that it probably will be difficult. So uh, even at IGC, there have been difficult times at IGC. Even in almost 13 years, difficult times. Yeah, it's a church. Every church has difficult times because it's full of people. People. God's people. And yet there are difficult times. And yet God, in the history of Indelible Grace Church, is still doing good. And all the things that we can't explain or wonder why happened, God is going to continue to bring good things about for His people. And for your good, for our good, but also for his glory. And also, any difficult things that happen in any church is to remind us that our only hope is Christ. He's the head of the church, right? He's the church. He's the head of it. So all that happens is for us to have hope only in Jesus Christ. Only hope in him. So couple applications to this. So the people that God chooses, as you look at Abraham and Sarah, as you look at even Joseph, who walks around boasting about uh, his brothers bowing down to him, all, Jacob, who shows favoritism, all the, you know, Rebecca and Rachel also messed up in how they were dealing with their kids. If you look at who God chooses, it's not for anything that they bring to the table. And I, like you said that two weeks ago. Yeah, I just want to keep reminding you that what you and I bring to the table is nothing. And that should bring you great hope. You don't have to bring anything, anything to the table for God to use you, for God to love you. We are loved in Christ because of his grace, period. And I'm so grateful because I have my days where I'm like, yeah, I can see why God would choose me. Yeah, I shouldn't say days. I have moments. I have minutes. I have, there are times, little short snippets. Where I'm like, yeah. 
And then things just... And then I'm like, oh God, I need your grace. Oh, thank God that Christ died and rose again and is interceding on my behalf day and night. If you came to church this morning hoping in anything but Jesus... I'm so glad you're here because I want to tell you that's all going to crumble. It's, I mean, if you're hoping in good churches, if you're hoping in yourself in any way, if you're hoping in your money and your job and your family or any of those things, welcome. All that stuff is going to bring you disappointment. It'll bring you moments of good, but it can never bring you the hope your soul longs for. Only Christ. And the people of, the people God chooses are, are there, Sorry to, to say um, Yellowstone twice, but the people God uses and chooses are the Jimmy. Have you y'all seen Yellowstone? Oh, good. Don't. Don't ever watch that. Um, well, going back to the call to worship, we, God's people have nothing to boast in. You, you can't boast in anything as God's people except Jesus and his grace. And Genesis bears that out over and over and over again. And then... Another application of the Joseph narrative and all that God does is the impossibility of it all. I mean, once Joseph gets sold into slavery, he was sold to the Midianites. Uh, you know, he didn't, he wasn't sold to the Egyptians. First was the Midianites. And if you know anything in history about the Midianites, anybody? Those people are, they were horrible people. They took people, they, um, they made them slaves, they separated families, they would, um, they would impale them to drag them around us. I mean, horrible human atrocities by the Midianites. So when Joseph gets sold to the Midianites, you're supposed to think it's over. Absolutely no hope, nothing can happen, but Joseph's going to die or he's going to be extinct in, in oblivion. But see, that's not what God... God loves impossible, sold to the Midianites, all the impossibilities. That's what God loves. Tom, you said this two weeks ago. Yeah. The gospel is completely impossible. Taking our sinfulness, our waywardness, our inabilities, and yet the pinnacle of creation... Look, I don't want to take away from the fact that human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. You're beautiful, wonderful human beings because you are made in the image of God. You have amazing amazing agency. You have all the beautiful gifts and creativity and look, all of that. And that's all because of God, by the way. All of that is because you mirror the image of God. So yeah, Humans are amazing, but still the impossibility of how we could somehow be with God after all that's happened, just given Genesis, the impossibility, Christ meets all that impossibility with himself, as we learned in the catechism. Virgin birth, it's impossible. God God loves the impossible. Whatever you're looking at in your life, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, not a problem. We've been here before. Midianites, uh, a famine, no way for the Israelites to do anything but be ex- go, go into extinction. Maybe you're looking at your life and you're thinking, extinction. That's a word that describes my life right now. You have hope in Christ. Hope in Him. So, last point. Everything that happens to Joseph 
right? All the, being betrayed by his brothers, um, going through horrible situations, imprisonment, um, false accusations, just so many things that happened to Joseph. All of those things, because see, Joseph is an exemplar. And you know, just a little aside here, exemplarism is a very um, hot topic in academics right now. Um, if you want to read on exemplarism in the academic world, uh, Linda Zagzebski, um, don't try to Google her. She's a scholar who's written on exemplarism. And uh, it, again, it's a very hot topic. But Joseph is an exemplar in Scripture. And who is he an exemplar of or for? He's not an example to follow. He's not a moral elite for you to try to get in line with. He is an exemplar of Jesus. So that when Jesus steps on the scene, everybody's like, oh, the second Joseph. Like, every was Jesus betrayed by his brothers? Absolutely. Was he technically thrown into a pit like Joseph was? Was, he, was Jesus sold by his... Yes, everything that happens to Joseph, he's an exemplar so that when Jesus steps on scene, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus really understands every... He, he's the one we've been waiting for. He's the true Joseph who would save his people from extinction, would save us from famine. But here's, here's the thing. What happens at the end of the story is not so much about Joseph. It's about Judah, Joseph's brother. One of Joseph's brothers, because he had a bunch of them, right? So what do you all know about Judah? You're like, Tom, are you about to start another story? about? And No, I'm just going to tell you, Judah is the other most important brother in this whole story. And you're like, wait, Tom, isn't Judah the one in Genesis 38 who had that whole situation with Tamar? Yeah, Judah and Tamar. You can, you can Google those people if you want. Judah and Tamar, that's a crazy story. But yeah, Judah, he shows up as a brother who was very much a part of selling, getting rid of Joseph, and um, he was a child. And when I say child, I mean childish in every way. He was the brother to really mock in the entire story. And yet at the end, when everything falls apart, Judah bows before Joseph and actually gives, for you biblical scholars who love Bible scholarly things, Judah gives the longest speech act in the Old Testament. So the longest speech in the Old Testament is by Judah. It's not by Joseph. It's not by some Moses or Abraham. It's Judah who had that situation with Tamar, who was a horrible brother. Longest speech act in the Old Testament is Judah. In Genesis 44, he bows before Joseph and he says, everything that you want to do to us, sir, you should do. We should, we should go extinct. Everything you want, we should die, all of us. We're horrible. Uh, we sold our brother. We, he just confesses everything to not knowing it's his brother Joseph. He confesses all of his sin, all of his failure to Joseph. He says, please, please take me as a sacrifice and save my family. Judas begs Joseph. And that's when we come into the story today that Joseph sees Judah, this brother, this horrible guy, 
that was a child and was horrible to him, confess and repent, basically, and say, take me. And Joseph can't take it. He's like, he, he just leaves the room and he's uncontrollably emotional. So much so, it's like the whole household hears Joseph wailing and crying because of Judah, who has completely turned his whole thing around because of all that God has done. So, here's what I came to say. You're like, my goodness, please say it. You're welcome. This is what I came to say today. If you haven't had a Judah moment in your life, where you kneel before God and you say it all and you're like, I should be extinct. But God, please. And Jesus lifts you up. Jesus is the uncontrollable emotional one who comes back because that's what Joseph did. He comes back and he's like, I'm your brother. We all have to have Judah moments At least one, and then they continue to happen where we kneel before our Savior. We kneel before the one who is uncontrollably emotional about us in love and says, stand up. I'm going to save you. There's not going to be famine. There's not going to be extinction. You're going to go on. There's hope. Flee to Jesus, please. If you haven't, have have a long speech act before Jesus. And just tell him everything. Because you know Joseph knew everything, right? You know everything Judah's saying? He's like, go on. Keep going. Yeah. It's probably why it was the longest speech act. Because once Judah says, hey, I've got these brothers. We sold one brother into slavery. You know, I mean, Joseph probably is thinking to himself, I'm listening. (laughs) Keep going. I mean, please come to the second Joseph. Please come to Jesus. He's your only hope. He's my only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for giving us nothing to boast in but the Lord Jesus. By your Spirit, God, we would ask that you would renew our hearts with the gospel, the good news. Lord, Do your holy will in your church, we pray in your name. Amen.